You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. James and John remind me of my children. Maybe they remind you of your children. If you don't have children, maybe they remind you of when you were a child. If you are a child, maybe you did this recently. If you're an adult, you may have done it recently, so let's just drop the charade, right, and go with it. Because we're dealing with grown-ups in this passage, aren't we? James and John, the son of Zebedee, come to Jesus and say, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. And they remind me of those times when my kids come up and say, Hey, Dad, say yes. I'm not alone in this experience, clearly. And what are they doing? They're saying, like, like they've got something they want to do. They're pretty sure that I won't give my assent. And so they want me to just give this unconditioned blanket approval to whatever the next thing that comes out of their mouth is. And parents typically know better. We don't, you know, they don't give us credit for knowing better necessarily, but we tend to know better. Jesus knows better, doesn't he? And he doesn't fall for it, even though James and John are coming to him going, Jesus, won't you just go ahead and say yes to whatever we're about to ask? Jesus responds, what do you want me to do for you guys? And they say to him, in your glory, we want you to give us your right hand and left hand spots. Now we'll dig in more carefully and more closely to what that's all about in just a second, For now, suffice it to say, they want power. Jesus is running a kingdom of God movement. They think he's the Messiah, and they want the top jobs in the new administration. In your glory, when the crown is on your head, we want to sit at your right and your left hand. Again, we'll dig in more carefully in a second. For now, just trust me. They want positions of power. And Jesus' response is not to tell them, you're not going to be entrusted with some authority. His response is to teach them and the other disciples the nature of authority and power and leadership in the kingdom of God. That's the thing they've got. They have a preconceived notions. They have assumptions based on their culture about what power looks like. Jesus has to put his finger on those things and then turn the whole thing over and set them right. And there's a central lesson they've got to learn, and it's what Jesus wants all of his followers to learn whether it's 1st century or 21st century. And that is that before we can serve Jesus, we talk a lot about serving Jesus around here, but before we can serve Jesus, we must be served by him. We don't often think, how can Jesus serve me? But that's precisely where he goes, isn't it? Before we can serve Jesus, before we can be properly and fully and deeply and rightly engaged 
in his kingdom of God ministry, before we can serve in that capacity, we need him to do something for us. We need him to serve us in a certain way. That's the thing he's going to instruct them about. Before we can serve with Jesus, we must be served by Jesus. So what's going on here? So James and John come to Jesus, and they have this request. He's just given this death and resurrection prediction again. They haven't understood that up until this point. They apparently still don't understand it. Because if they understood that he was going to be crucified, they wouldn't ask to be at his right and left hand, would they? After all, Jesus said, those spots are reserved for someone else. And if you've read through the end of the gospel, you know who is hanging on crosses at Jesus' right and left when the crown of thorns is placed on his brow and king of the Jews is proclaimed on a sign above his head. James and John do not understand what Jesus is about. So they come to him and they ask him, hey, we've got a question. We want him to do something for us. Chances are he may already be thinking of someone else, so let's give him this, hey, Jesus, please say yes thing like kids do sometimes. And that's what they do. He asked them, what do you want? And they ask him, here's what we want. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand, one in your left, in your glory. Now again, their perception of what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah, God's chosen one, which is what that term means, chosen king, in the kingdom of God, is shaped by their culture. And if you know what I'm about to say, that's good. It means you've been paying attention for the last month or so. Uh, every good teacher knows that repetition helps us lodge ideas in our head and highlights what's important. So again, these guys assume that a Messiah is a political revolutionary. They've had people who thought they were Messiahs in the past, and those folks have all gathered armies or group of revolutionaries. They've sharpened their swords. They've gathered their spears. They've marched on Jerusalem. They've taken it to their enemies. Sometimes they win. Sometimes they don't. If you don't win, it means you weren't the Messiah. <laughs> you wind up dead. If you do win, typically there's some great celebration. You know, they run the Romans out of town or whoever the oppressors of the year happen to be. The Sadducee types who are kind of making their bed with the pagans, right? Those guys have got to go James and John, when they're gone and you set up the new administration, we want the top jobs. We want the cabinet positions, right? That's what they're asking for. Vice President, Attorney General, Secretary of State, something like that. When you come into your glory, when the crown is placed on your head, when all is right, when our enemies are deposed, when you are in that place of ruling authority, and they're expecting this quite quickly, here before too long, we want the top jobs. Now, this invitation or this, this request provokes a response from their other uh, the other people in their group, right? The disciple, the other disciples, the other ten. Verse 41. When the ten heard this, they were angry with James and John. Now, why would they be angry with James and John for asking for prominent positions in of authority in Jesus' new administration after he wins this great battle that they expect to be coming along? Here very shortly. The other ten are angry because James and John beat him to the punch. What do you think Peter wanted to do? You think he was just along for the ride? He wants one of those jobs. What about, you know, 
Judas or Thaddeus or one of these other guys. They all are interested in the same thing. And this grasping for influence, this grasping for power reveals, and, and the frustration, right? Because somebody got ahead of them in the line. The frustration, you know, maybe you've been at work and it's like, I really want to ask for that promotion and somebody else gets to it first. and That thing happens. That's what's going on. And it reveals that they have fundamentally misunderstood what the kingdom of God is all about. And it reveals that they are not in it for Jesus. They are not in it for the kingdom. They are in it for themselves, aren't they? We're here for what we can get out of it. Power, authority, influence, prominence, wealth perhaps. When he's king, glory, we want to be a part of that. That's the scene. And again, they are like children, jostling and fighting and battling with one another in these situations. And they are like all of us, aren't they? Grown people who find more sophisticated ways to jockey and battle for position and prominence. This is the common human condition from the cradle to the grave if Jesus doesn't intervene and do something about it. They've not yet learned what it means to serve in the kingdom. So Jesus has to instruct them. So he gathers them. Settle down, guys. Come together. Let's talk about what it is we're doing and what it's going to look like. And so he says to them, right, after the ten hear this, they're angry with James and John, verse 41, now verse 42. So Jesus calls them together. And he says to them, you know that among the Gentiles, the, the Gentiles is just the word for the nations, not the non-Jewish nations, among the nations, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. And the disciples know exactly what he's talking about here, right? I mean, they live within the bounds of the Roman Empire. And who is the great one in the Roman Empire? Caesar is the great one in the Roman Empire. Does he see anyone else as his servant? As, as, does he see himself serving anyone else? He doesn't see himself serving anyone. He is, a, he is, in a sense, a great benefactor. But everyone serves him. Everyone out there serves him, and he sort of dominates over them. And so Jesus says, look, you know how it works out there. You know how difficult it is when he shows up requiring your last penny for, the ta for taxes or taking your kids off to fight in his wars. This is the kind of thing. The rulers of the world are dominating tyrants and power players, and they lord their authority over those they rule, Jesus says. And that is the operative paradigm. That's the model that you guys are operating with. That's why you want right and left-hand jobs. That's why you want to be Jesus' right-hand man in the new kingdom, because you want what they have. But before you can serve in the kingdom, you've got to learn how I'm here to serve you. You've got to learn what leadership looks like. You've got to learn what authority looks like in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus proceeds to say, you don't operate the way they operate. It's not so among you, verse 43. Whoever wishes to become great, which is what they're wishing for, James and John wish to become great, that's why they ask for these prominent positions. 
Whoever wishes to become great must be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first must be slave of all. And then Jesus explains to them that he, the king, embodies that character. The thing that he's describing, this universal servant, slave of all, servant to the others, Jesus, the Messiah, the king, the one who is coming into his glory, he embodies all of that to them, to Judea, to Israel, and to the nations. Whoever wishes to be first must be a slave of all, for the Son of Man, one of Jesus' titles for himself, came not to be served, but to give his life a ransom for many. Before we can serve with Jesus in the kingdom, he must serve us by offering his life as a ransom for ours so that we can come to embody his servant-defined character. That's what kingdom leadership looks like. Before we can serve with Jesus, we must be served by him. And he serves us by becoming a ransoming servant. This idea of ransom that Jesus brings up you know, involves a captivity situation, doesn't it? Right? Watching a movie, somebody gets kidnapped, and the, kidna- and the, the hostage taker wants what? A ransom. You know, big bag of cash and a plane ticket out of the country or something, right? That's how these things work. There's a captive and there is a ransom. And the, you give the ransom in exchange for the captive. So there's a couple of things going on here. There's a sense of captivity in the analogy. And there is a sense of exchange in the captivity. So we should ask ourselves, what, how, does, how, do those, how does that play out? Who are the captives? Well, James and John are captive, aren't they? <laughs> they don't know it, but they are. They are captive to a self-oriented, self-promoting, self-determinative understanding of the world and the kingdom. The great reformer Martin Luther said, the definition of sin is a heart turned in on itself. These guys fit the definition, don't they? But it's not just them, is it? Jesus says, I've come to do this for the many. The other ten who are frustrated because their self-oriented hearts didn't get to Jesus first. (laughs) But it's not just them, is it? It's the many. It's all of us, isn't it? All of us come into the world with this fundamental, self-oriented, self-determinative, self-ruling heart, desire, inclination. Jesus offers himself, he's the ransom, so that we can be free from captivity to that. I'm going to have my way, no matter what, no matter who gets hurt. I I don't care if I have to step on my best friend the guys I've been in ministry with for years, 
or the people I work with or family. Nobody's going to get in my way. That thing, that dark, inward curved heart, we're captives, naturally. Charles Wesley, in one of his hymns, said, prayerfully, take away my bent towards sin. Same idea, right? My heart is just bent in, curved in, twisted in towards self-aggrandizement. And I need Jesus to turn it back out the other way. So Jesus both accomplishes and embodies the thing he's after in us. He is the servant who sets us free. He is the one who humbles himself, who seeks not his own interests, but the interests of others. He doesn't take advantage of the fact that he has the name above every name. <laughs> he doesn't take advantage of his status or his prominence or his divinity, but he humbles himself and becomes a servant to his enemies, namely us. And he accomplishes our redemption in doing it. But not just our redemption, he embodies what he wants us, he, he embodies the character he wants us to have, and he enables us to have it. The reason he's teaching these guys what this looks like is not so that they can go off and just keep on doing it the old way. He's about to turn them loose on the world pretty soon, isn't he? Go, disciple the nations, teach them to obey everything I've commanded. And if they go to the nations with hearts curved in on themselves, they will not faithfully carry his kingdom forward, will they? He's got to change them. He's got to change us. He's got to take that inward curvature of our hearts and turn it out in, in self-giving love instead of self-oriented aggrandizement. That's how he serves us. And before we can serve with him, we need him to serve us in that way. Blind Bartimaeus functions as the counterexample, doesn't he? If the disciples are blind to the kingdom, blind Bartimaeus knows clearly that Jesus is the only one. He sees clearly that Jesus is the only one able to heal, doesn't he? And even though people try to shush him up and keep him back, he's crying out, Son of David, Messiah. Son of David is another way of saying, hey, you're the rightful king. David was the most prominent king. Hey, Son of David, have mercy on me. He has nothing to offer. He can't contribute anything. He doesn't even know where Jesus is. He heard he was coming. He can't see him. He can't get up and walk over to him because he'd trip and fall down. He can't do... He is helpless. He doesn't, he doesn't get to Jesus unless somebody clears a path for him. Mark wants, the, he wants his first century readers, he wants us to see that we are helpless apart from Christ. Thoroughly helpless. No, we have nothing to offer him. And he has everything to offer us. And in the same way he opened the eyes of this blind man, he wants to open our eyes. 
to see the world differently, to see the kingdom engaging the world differently, to see ourselves differently, to see the church differently, to see it at all, and to see Jesus as the servant king over whom, over, who rules over all things. So once Jesus ransoms us and enables us to serve, what does that look like? Like, what does it look like for the kingdom of God? That remember, like, this is the thing that's all the way through, right? They have questions about the kingdom. They want the top spots in the kingdom. Jesus is instructing them that his kingdom doesn't work the way the same way the Roman kingdom does. Like, it's all, the whole thing is about the kingdom. It's, it's, it, the whole passage launches with the death and resurrection of Jesus. His resurrection is his ascension to the throne of the kingdom of God. His death and his resurrection are the place where he becomes king of the world. So what does, if we're talking about the kingdom and what service in the kingdom looks like and our part in the kingdom looks like, what is, how do we answer that question? Where do we even begin and let's begin with some of the misunderstandings. We misunderstand what the kingdom is all about. Sometimes we misunderstand it by thinking the kingdom is simply a matter of my individual life and transformation. Right? Jesus is my personal Savior, and He wants to work in me. He does, that's true. But if the implications of His rescue stop with me, then I've misunderstood what He's after. Right? We think... You know, Jesus, you know I, I've got to love Jesus and I've got to give myself to Jesus and I've got to just kind of, me and Jesus, is, we got our own thing going and he's my best friend and just there's this very one vertical, just me and Jesus thing. And we don't feel like we can impose that on other people. That would be presumptuous. That would be not taking their perspectives and assumptions and views accurately or giving them respect. But if Jesus is the king, if all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, if his death is his coronation and his resurrection is his ascension to the throne of heaven over earth, then his rule proceeds beyond the bounds of my body and my private spirituality. He sends his disciples out to declare his kingship over everything and everyone. And if I kind of keep that to myself, I've misunderstood what he's all about. Another misreading of the kingdom, misunderstanding of the kingdom, is that it's a spiritual kingdom for a spiritual world that doesn't really carry implications for the world we live in. And this is, uh, imagine taking all the different kinds of power and authority and sticking them in different columns, right? You got church authority and you got kind of governing civic authority and uh, maybe you have uh, Jesus's authority over here and then there's another institution over there and they've got some authority and they're all kind of operating in their spheres of authority, right? As if Jesus were like one of the several names on the ballot. <laughs> Jesus is not one authority among many. 
He is not in competition with other governing authorities. It's not as if, uh, you know, when, when there's a global leader summit, right? And they have a president, a prime minister, a premier of another country, right? They all kind of come together and they're sitting around a table and they're all there kind of equally, like United Nations kind of thing. And, and, nobody, and none of their spheres of authority overlap, right? This prime minister doesn't have authority over that premier or king or whatever, right? They're all separate. Jesus is not one among them. Jesus is Lord over them. Whether they like it or not. That's the most important part. His kingship is not something we can shuffle off to a spiritual realm. If he's king over heaven and earth, if all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him, then the governing powers of every nation are subject to him. So what is the church's posture? It is the church's posture to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord and teach all of them to obey everything he commanded, regardless of the circumstance. It is the like, what does it mean to be a servant in the kingdom of God? To be a servant in the kingdom of God is to declare that Jesus Christ is king over all things that he has bought them with his blood, and that God the Father has handed him the kingdoms of the world. It's our job to tell them he's king and to teach them wisdom. You ever think about that? It's the church's job to teach civic authorities wisdom. My guess is very few Christians go through their day thinking, hey, somehow I've got to teach wisdom to my colleagues to the governor to my elected representatives to my children right, this is an inclusive list <laughs> no one is beyond the bounds of the loving lordship of Jesus Christ and everyone becomes their best and their whole self when they are surrendered to his loving lordship. And it's our job, it is our job to teach wisdom and obedience to the nations. That's what Jesus says, right? That's what the kingdom is about. This runs Old Testament, this runs New Testament. We are justified in looking at the Psalms after blind Bartimaeus calls Jesus son of David. The Psalms are about the son of David, particularly Psalm 2. It's a wonderful reminder that our posture to teach wisdom and to teach obedience is consistent or should be consistent regardless of circumstances. Right? Just because there's a global pandemic does not mean the church is sort of on vacation from teaching the nations to obey Jesus. Whether we're talking about folks at the bottom rung of the ladder or the top. Just because there's a global pandemic doesn't mean we get a break. Just because there's conflict doesn't mean we get a break. 
Jesus, friends, is not surprised, caught off guard, taken aback, or on his heels when crises hit the world. Back in January, February, March, when this thing spread all over the place and we went nuts, Jesus was not going nuts. He was not, hey, what do I, uh, pandemic, virus, what do I do? Let's get, you know, some, figure it out. The church needs this and the doctor's that. And Jesus is not taken aback. He is not helpless. He is not caught off guard. He is not surprised. When nations plot against one another and vie for power and authority, or when political parties battle with one another and vie with, for power and authority, and we get really stressed out about that, and we want our candidate to be there, and we're like, we're posting things on Facebook about it or talking about it over coffee, and we get stressed out if the polls aren't where we want them to be. You know what Jesus' posture is in those kinds of settings? <laughs> That's what the Bible says. Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations conspire in the people's plot in vain? You ever seen a nation conspire? Right? You ever seen conspiring nations? Why do the people's plot in vain? You ever seen people's plot? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds asunder and cast their cords from us, saying, Jesus doesn't have authority over our... This is where we're in charge here, not Jesus. You ever watch the news and hear things like... I mean, nobody says it quite like that. Pretty close. Jesus isn't in charge here. We are. Pay attention. It's everywhere. Jesus' posture to that is not, oh no, what do I do? Psalm chapter 2, verse 4 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. It's like, it's like when you go and sort of kick over an ant bed and they go crazy. It doesn't unsettle you, maybe unless they get in your socks. But it's kind of like that. They run, it's crazy, things are happening, but it's small and insignificant compared to your, your, your authority and power. Right? When the world's power players plot and conspire to prop up themselves, right, Jesus is not stressed. He is not worried. He is not afraid. He's entertained. It's not a big deal for him. He's not caught off guard. He's the king. He who, sa who, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord has them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, son of David, son of man, son of God. Today I have begotten you, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. When Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, that prophecy was fulfilled. We are not waiting for Jesus to inherit the nations. He got hold of them 2,000 years ago. And he has dispensed his church now to teach them wisdom. That's why there's no place that's off limits. I got friends... Some of you I've told about from time to time, 
who live in places where the church is antagonized. Like, friends, I get it. It's not as comfortable here as it used to be to be a Christian. We are not persecuted the way these folks are persecuted. Some of you have heard me tell a story about a student of mine in a preaching class a couple years ago. His assignments were getting turned in late, and I shot him an email. He's a pastor in India. It's an online course. Shot him a little email. Hey, man, missing your, you know, you should have turned your sermon in two weeks ago. What's going on? Let me know. He writes me back a couple days later and says, I'm sorry, professor, but the persecution from the state has really been ramping up in our area lately, and we had to flee in the middle of the night. I'll try to get my assignment in as quickly as I can. Guess what? You get an excuse, you know, like, let's pray for you. Like, don't worry about the sermon. Let's just, let's, wow. And then it just so happened the day I got that email from him, I was having lunch with a guy who was vice president of a ministry that supports the persecuted church all over the world. This guy, because he's going into places where he's not welcome, like when he speaks at a conference, he speaks with a false name, okay? <laughs> because if his real name got out, the folks, you know, would catch him when they scan his passport going into closed country. Like, this is not your mama's mission trip, your grandma's This is serious stuff. These are guys who, you know when you, like, fill out the little um, card on the airplane if you travel internationally, the customs form, and they want to know if you have $10,000 on your person? Right? They carry 9999 on each to, to support the persecuted church, so they can say, no, we don't. There are Christians who are trying to get resources and care to people around the world who are running for their lives because they love Jesus. So we, we ain't got to that yet, okay? The church, friends, every nation, all over the teaching wisdom. This is what it looks like. Faithful pastors in India or China or Alabama trying to resource and equip in churches who are committed to doing what Jesus said to do. They're there because he's king, even though they're not wanted. And there's no off-limit space. There's no border that Jesus isn't the king over. And so there are ministries that say, hey, you know what? Jesus is king of India, actually. And so we're going to do everything we can to support the church there, even if it's dangerous. Like, that's not what we used to call, <laughs> uh, remember when I was a kid, there was this phrase, Sunday, Wednesday Christians? Like, that's not the same thing, Right? We'll go by on Sunday or Wednesday if we have time and base, you know, sports practice fits it. And I get it. I struggle with that. And I'm a pastor and I struggle with the calendar thing. And it's, you know, the next time a meeting gets rearranged, it's probably because one of my kids had something. So, you know, you see my point, though. Like, this is the front thing. This is where we are. Jesus is king over all things, regardless of the global circumstances, and his kingdom is growing bit by bit with that faithfulness. When that pastor is taking care of his people in a persecuted country, and when those people are taking care of their pastor in that place, that's how the kingdom grows. And it's the church's responsibility. It is essential and it is crucial, especially in times of crisis, to teach wisdom to the nations. That's what it means to be a servant. And so we conclude with four questions.
four questions with some sub-questions. To whom are you declaring the kingship of Jesus? If that's what it means to be a servant in the kingdom, who are we talking to about the lordship of Jesus Christ? Family, co-workers, our kids, absolutely our kids. Our governors, who are we talking to about the lordship of Jesus? Is your life ordered by the chief commitment to declare the good news of Jesus' kingship to your neighbors and the nations? Like, we have different things that order our life. For some of us, it's our career. For others of us, it's our family. For some of us, it may be something at the church or, you know, something, you know, just these different things. Is the kingdom of God and the declaration of God's wisdom in Christ the ultimate ordering thing, right? My, my vocation, my job funds my declaring the kingship of Jesus thing. Right? I'm training up my family so I can get more folks on the kingdom declaration thing. Who are you teaching to obey the commands of Jesus, right? It's not just we're declaring the kingdom. Jesus said, teach the nations to obey me. The mission of the church isn't just to make sure everybody has heard Jesus, it's to make sure everyone obeys him. That's a very long and a very slow process. It's kind of like yeast working its way through a batch of dough. I think Jesus said that one time. It's kind of like a little bitty seed that you plant in the ground that later on grows into a big bush and all the birds of the air have their home there and all the people of the nations find their home in the kingdom that grows slowly over time. But that's our job, plowing one direction faithfully for a long, long time. And have you made the local church the place where you do that work? The place from which you do that work? Jesus came to say, I will build my church. This is the front lines. The church, churches, little outposts, little colonies of the kingdom of God all over the world. And as their influence grows and the reality of the kingdom becomes more prominent, then it will be true what the prophets have said. The earth will be full of the knowledge and the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The Bible looks for a day when the earth is filled with the knowledge of God as much as the ocean is wet. I get kind of excited about that. <laughs> it's a pretty bright future. And we are called to be enacting it by teaching wisdom to our kids, our friends, the powers, our neighbors, and the nations. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.